invite you to take your Bibles this morning. We're going to be looking once again at the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 10. And while you're turning there, if you're able to do that a little more effectively than I am right now, I'm going to have you multitask, and I want you to take out the form that you received as you came into the room today or came into the building. It looks something like this or like that. It's up on the on the board. Um, for those of you that love charts, you're just giddy with excitement. For the majority of you, you're like, oh my goodness, am I supposed to understand all this? Well, I'm going to just take a couple of minutes to try to walk us through this before we jump into our passage this morning, because we are engaged in a study in the book of Acts. Um, the spirit at work to the ends of the earth is the theme we're following. It's built around the, the outline of the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We've been studying in the first chapters of the book of Acts, the early church fulfilling these words of Jesus. They have received power from the Spirit of God at the day of Pentecost. And now they have begun to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem. And these first six, seven chapters which actually comprise seven years, about A.D. 29 up through A.D. 36. These seven years in these seven chapters are presenting to us the church beginning through the power of the Spirit to be witnesses to Jesus throughout the city and the surrounding area of Jerusalem. This chart, in a simple way, is presenting to us just sort of a snapshot of the fact that these seven chapters, even though they cover seven years, actually are highlighted by four events. And these four events are just one or two day events, but they're events that, that the, the author Luke uses to try to give an overview of the ongoing life and impact of the early church. These four events are in Acts chapter two, and they're the, in the gray, if you see the gray bars. The first of those is the coming of the Spirit at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Then there is the healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 3 and 4 that we're beginning to look at today. Then there is the, the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira and God's signs of his, his power and glory that is shown in the discipline to them and also the ensuing works he does in the church in chapter six, five and the beginning of chapter six. And then in chapter seven, we have the story of Stephen and his works, but particularly his words. These events form the, the, the focus of the book of Acts chapter two through seven, as we see the church progressing. If you look at the, the yellow, simply that's talking about three of these events actually have a sermon right after them. Then you'll notice the response response of the people. If you see the words there, and they show the impact of these four events, words like people were astonished. The second one, again, these are quotes, people were astonished. The next one, people were afraid, and then people were amazed and en actually enraged. You see these different responses that are taking place. But each of these events also leads into a summary of what is going on 
tells us the response of the people at large. One of the most amazing things that we see after each of these four events is the summary of what is taking place. Number one, we see first in Acts chapter 2, the result there was the 3,000 people in the community believed in Jesus. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, we see that uh, 5,000 men, which probably was 10,000 people, responded. Acts chapter 5 and 6, it says that there were multitudes that believed. And in Acts chapter 7, the remarkable statement in that context where it talks about the fact that many, a great many of the priests believed on Jesus. We see in the blue, uh, excuse me, in the green, that among the believers, the community is developing. We see prayer is becoming a focus. Sharing in common with one another is becoming a focus. Bold witness is becoming a focus. It's continuing to grow through these seven years, illustrated in the events as a result of these four different incidents. But also something else begins. It begins with this event. There is, as demonstrated by the pink boxes, opposition that begins to form. There is hostility that begins to happen in the community of the faith. And, and, and Luke takes these events and then weaves in them these summary statements that are letting us know this is transpiring as the early church is going forward. So this is just a, an overview to give you a picture of that because today we're coming to Acts chapter 3. And as we come to our text, we see that this very first miracle that is done by the apostles after the coming of the Spirit results in the largest influx of people coming, becoming Christians, and it also results in the beginning of significant opposition. We're going to look at this in chapter 3 and 4 over the next handful of weeks. But today, I want to look specifically at the miracle, and it is interesting because I believe this miracle stands as an example of all of the miracles, both by Jesus and the disciples. And we find from this passage four things we can learn about these miracles, why God has them, what God intends for us in them. So let's look at this passage. I'd like to read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him and said, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we love your stories because you tell them for a reason. And God, it's been exciting to me to reflect on the reasons that you tell us the stories of your miracles. And Lord, as we, we look at this passage and this lame man being healed, I pray that we might learn more about the Christ in whose name he was, he was healed. Speak to us truth. Open our hearts to things you have for us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at four things that this miracle provides sort of a grid of understanding the miracles of God. Four things they point to. Number one, they point to God's power. It says in verse 6, In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up. This is Peter's response to the layman. Now, many people today look at the miracles of God as fictitious or exaggerated stories. They're looked at as a little more, uh, uh, basically like a, like a fable with a moral to it, with a good, you know, a good point to it to help people in their lives. But this miracle, as all 14 miracles in the book of Acts, are presented as authentications of the power of Christ. They are given as credentials for what he says and what he's taught and for what he has claimed to have done. The skeptic believes that the miracles of the Bible cannot really have happened because they go against what is known as the laws of nature. But a reading of the Bible and an acquaintance with the God of the Bible causes you to understand that what we call the the laws of nature are simply the normal ways that God chooses to control and run his universe. We have in our hallway and a little nightlight, um, and usually you have those for babies. We have them for ourselves. Um, but every morning I go down the hallway, and it's usually dark. Sometimes it's later. But as I'm going down the hallway, I... I invariably flip that thing off. I turn it off. It's a, it's a regular thing. It's the way life in our home typically starts. Now, Marion could get up and think, ah, the law of nature is operative. The light is out. It was on during the night. It's out in the morning. But if I oversleep, or if I just choose to not turn the nightlight off, I have just stopped what appears to be a law of nature. It is the miracles of God. Are God just choosing to act in exception to the way he normally runs his universe? Now, you may be there and you say, wait, wait a minute. I mean, it's a little different to talk about you turning your nightlight off than, than the fact that the sun is going to rise every day. I mean, we know how that happens. It happens by the rotation of the earth. And, and when our, our part of the earth gets towards facing the sun, the sun rises. Well, interestingly, God actually did stop that very rotation. It was, it's a perfect example. God, in the book of Joshua, it says he actually caused the sun to stand still. The idea was the earth did not rotate at that time, and for 24 hours, there was total daylight. God normally runs his universe and brings sunlight to you and I by 
causing the earth to rotate. It's why Jesus is described in Colossians chapter 1. By him, it says he not only created everything, but it makes this remarkable statement. And in him, everything holds together. He's running it. He's controlling it. And when he chooses to not have the earth rotate, He's not bound by what we call a law. The laws of nature are simply the normal way that a sovereign God orchestrates and controls his universe. Miracles are a moment when God chooses to act in exception to his normal path. Now, we look at laws of nature as something to... Be, that, that bind us. For instance, when people die, they remain dead. When people have a medically incurable disease, they are incurable. Except when the one who runs his universe chooses to bring them back to life or chooses to cure the incurable, as apparently was this man here. God is not bound within what we call the laws of nature. They are simply the normal way he works. And so when we see miracles, it points us to God, the one who is above apparent laws, but are simply the normal way that he chooses to operate. A miracle is when he acts in an exceptional way. The second thing we find about a miracle is a miracle points to God's restoration of all things. In verse 2, this guy is described as a man lame from birth. We read in chapter 4 that he is actually a man that's in his 40s. He has no power in his legs whatsoever. He has to be carried to the spot by friends or associates. Then we see him walking, jumping, praising God. This man with a broken body turns into Tigger. He's now dancing with the stars in the midst of the temple. And this visual is one where God has purposely, intentionally chosen this type of miracle for a unique messaging to us. Because every person that was in the temple that day, when they saw this guy leaping, jumping, praising God with joy, would have thought of an Old Testament passage. It's Isaiah chapter 35. It is a description of what the Messiah will do one day in the future when all is changed. It's, here, here's, the, here's the passage, Isaiah 35, 36. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It's interesting in verse 21, in, in, I, I, can't, I think it's 17 or 21, I've forgotten. But later in the passage, in the next, subject, next passage we'll look at, it describes Jesus. Jesus, it says, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. He's pointing to this. He's saying, Jesus the one who has done this, the one who has fulfilled Isaiah 35 and the fact that the lame will leap for joy and will jump around. He says, that will be true of all one day. There will be the, reconcil- the, 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 the resolving of all issues. 
all things will be cared for, healed in that day. And Peter's sermon is pointing, it's Jesus I'm talking about, the one who is there waiting to restore all things to their, their appropriate place. This man's healing was a visual reminder that Christ was the one who would be the one that would restore all things to life as it ought to be. You see, miracles are never just a naked display of power. Neither Jesus or his disciples do miracles just to wow people. You don't see Jesus or his disciples gathering a crowd of people around and saying, what's your name? Amos, Amos, watch. And you see Jesus then take a bunch of clouds and he pulls this one over and this one over. And all of a sudden you see the sky spelling Amos. Wow. You don't see Jesus or the disciples all of us saying, watch. And they start levitating. You don't see Jesus and the disciples doing a Yoda you know, lifting the, the spaceship out of the mud and mire of the swamp just to sort of wow you. You don't see him saying, watch me watch through, watch me look through walls. Go, go back there, hold up fingers. I'll tell you how many there are. Why? Because his purpose in miracles isn't to wow anybody. His purpose in miracles has with it, there, there is a, 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 a state when you look and say, wow, this is someone. But there is always a deeper meaning to miracles than just stunning people. There is always pointing to the reality that miracles are always alleviating suffering or human trouble of some kind. Why? Because miracles are pointing to a day when all will be restored. Jesus will restore all things. He will bring life as to as it ought to be. You see, God did not invent blindness or lameness or suffering. They're all result of a fallen world. Poverty and justice, sickness and death. De Jesus, God did not invent a world with these things. They are the result of, of sin and, and rebellion and, a, and, a, and a, a world that is under the curse of such things. Some people say miracles are suspension of the natural order. They're not. Miracles are a restoration of the natural order. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. It's not going against the natural order. This is the, is, is, is the aberration of the natural order. Sickness, brokenness, anger, hatred, genocide. What will be the rec rec restoration of the natural order? is when a blind person is ultimately healed, when a deaf person ultimately hears, when a lame person runs and jumps, the natural order is restored. Jesus and his apostles are, only the are the only natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. The picture here is that suffering is unnatural in the design of God. It is the result of a world that has turned away from the, 
the design of God, life is not as it ought to be. We all feel that. We all sense it. Things shouldn't be this way. But this guy's healing is a visual reminder, I believe intentionally chosen by God at this moment, that Peter could direct the the attention of the people and say, this guy who's now jumping around like a pogo stick with joy in the temple is a reminder that Jesus is the one who will restore all life to the way it ought to be. The hymn writer Isaac Watts in his famous hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues, picked up on this when he said this, Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come and leap, ye lame, for joy. God's healing of the lame man points to something beyond this guy himself. It points to a day when all believers will be leaping and praising for joy in the midst of a world that is as God designed it to be, not as sin caused it to be. This miracle points to Jesus as the restorer of all things one day. The third thing it points to is God's providence. If you notice, verse 2 and 3, it talks about this man, and it says, his friends whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. I want to just show you, um, thanks to Tom Laundress, I got this really cool laser that I haven't used very much. Um, but there's a, there's a visual coming up. We can bring this up. Okay. If you look at this, this is the temple itself. Right, right now, we are standing looking down from the Mount of Olives. Okay. We're on the eastern side. Back here is all the city of, of uh, Jerusalem. And this is the, what is known, this big area on either side is what is known as the Court of the Gentiles. Thousands of people would be in there on a feast day. This is where Jesus drove out the money changers because by turning it into a den of robbers, it actually was making the only place the Gentiles could go to worship God um, uh, a sacrilege. It just became a, a, a marketplace of business. This is the main temple. And th- this area here is what is called the court of the women. They could go in and the next, all right, let's bring up the next slide. This is a close up. Here's the court of the women. There is an area there around the the temple itself is that big high part. Um, Men could go in there and and offer their sacrifices, offer incense on the pieces that were out in the uh, outer court. But as you zero in, when we talk about the the temple gate that is called beautiful gate, I'll give you guys some time. Uh, The beautiful gate, it is either this gate or it is this gate. And there's, there's debate about which one it was. But the reason I'm putting all this up there is either one of those gates is in an incredibly prominent place, right? I mean, anybody that's going in and all, you offered all your sacrifices in the interior gate. So this was a, a place where people would come and pray. 
on the the time where we are reading about it says it was the ninth hour, which meant three o'clock in the afternoon. There were two times of prayer every day when people gathered for prayer. There were also the times, the two times a day, when people gathered to offer the burnt offerings, which would have been just behind this gate and just before you went into the holy place. And the altar of the burnt altar would be there. So in other words, he's at a place and at a time when everybody's surging in to be associated, when the, the burnt offering is being offered, it was also a time when there was public prayer. And Peter and John have gone there to be a part of the public prayer time. This guy's friends bring him, and we're told that he's brought every day. The reason he was brought at that time is that's because that's when everybody's there. And that's when everybody's going into worship. And when people are most generous is when they're going into worship because... If we talk crassly, it's just, this is a good time to be a generous person if I'm going in to meet with God. And so it was a great time. Now, the striking reality of this is everybody knows this guy. Everybody. We read that later, the, the religious leaders, when he's standing there in the presence of John, Peter, and the religious leaders, nobody brings up the accusation, how do we know you were even lame? because he'd been there every day. They all knew him. We're told in Acts chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 3, yeah, verse 10, it says the people were astonished because they knew this guy. He was a fixture. And apparently there weren't a lot of people that were at the temple at this time. This was a man who was clearly known. Now I'm saying all this for this reason. Peter and John, we are told, habitually are coming to the temple. The people, the, the, the followers of Christ are gathering um, in an area called Solomon's Porch, which is, I'll show you next time where that is, uh, where they gathered. But they're there in the temple almost every day. This guy's there every day. They know this guy. They've seen this guy. But it wasn't until today they heal him. And it isn't only that this is the first time he notices Peter and John. He does. He calls out. He calls out to them. You see, every lame person in Jerusalem wasn't healed by the apostles. Every dead person wasn't raised from the morgue by the disciples. Although Peter did raise someone from the dead, Paul will as well. They did it when God's Spirit came upon them and prompted them to do that. Peter in this moment is absolutely positive what's going to happen. We know that because if you read the text, what happens? It says he reached down and he gave his hand to the man and he raised him. Well, if you're not 100% positive, this is going to work. And the word raised, I actually looked it up. The word raised actually means to lift. It talks about lifting sheep out of a pen. He's lifting him and as he's lifting him, he's confident that God is going to enable his legs to take the weight. Otherwise, he's lifting up a dead weight and the man's going to fall. But he lifts him and then the man, all of a sudden, it says his, his feet and his ankles and his legs are strengthened. And he starts doing his Tigger thing all over the temple. Peter knew at this moment that this was a God-appointed moment for this particular miracle. He reaches out his hand. He knew it was God's moment. It was God's appointed time. This miracle 
happens pointing to the fact that God sovereignly has these moments when he is going to make his glory known. There's a fourth thing, and I want to I go there. I'm going to wrap all this up. There's a fourth thing we find that is pointed to here. This points to God's priorities. Peter in verse 6, when he heals this guy, says, you know, and the guy is hoping they'll give him some money. He says, I don't have any money. You know, well, the way we're working as Christians right now, everybody's pooling the money. We didn't have much anyway. I've been traveling on the road for three years. I, I'm really not making a lot of money fishing, and I don't have money. So, but I got something else. What I have, I'll give. And that's when he tells the guy to rise. And God uses Peter's faith and the power of Christ to raise him. What I have, I give. Serving others with what you're given is the principle here of God's priority. Peter does not have this money. He does give him this, but here's the striking thing. The last time we heard from Peter was in chapter 2. He was doing a sermon there. It was a heady moment for Peter. Preaches the first sermon of the New Testament and this amazing response of the crowd by the movement of the Spirit is that 3,000 people get saved in response to Peter's message. That's the last time we see Peter in the crowd doing the, the public thing, preaching this amazing message. The stadium is, 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 is going crazy with people coming for it. The next event we see in Peter's life is right here. It is a reminder that you are never to lose sight of the individual. Peter and John come to this, and as they come with God's priorities in Jesus' kingdom, those who reach the many care about reaching the one. We're told in Micah chapter 6, verse 6 and 8, God's priorities for his people. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? He has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? To love kindness. I really landed on that phrase this week as I was preparing for this message. How like God. Marin and I read every night before we go to sleep. We're reading this week, we're reading through Exodus, and we came to the passage, Exodus 20, where the commandments are given by God to Moses, and it says that, that and, and, and to that point, God had been speaking to the people, and it says that there were thunderings and lightnings, and, and, and it says the mountain shook and the people were shook. And they, they basically say to Moses, you know what? How about you talk to us and not God anymore? They were terrorized. And Moses makes this re remarkable statement. He said, God does not want you to fear, but is rather doing these things that you will fear him. It's a remarkable thing. He's going to replace fear by fear. But the idea is, he's, he, this is what he's saying. I'll, I'll read the exact phrase. 
Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. He says, you know, you're leaving here and you're going into the promised land and you're going to face all kinds of, of adversaries and dangers. And I'm going to show you my greatness in order that you won't be afraid, in order that you won't be overwhelmed with the adversities and the problems and the dangers and the conflicts. In other words, why does God show his, his majestic power? Is it just to wow them? No. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says it this way. He delights to show mercy. He's mercying the Israelites by showing them his bigness. It's not just God wants them scared of him. He said, I want you to know I'm big enough to protect you. I'm big enough to watch out for you. I'm big enough to lead you. I'm big enough to face with you anything that comes your way. It's the kindness of God, the, the foundational reality of God towards humans is kindness. But sometimes the kindest thing he can do is just remind us he's big and he's holy and he's majestic. But it's always in the context of his delight to show mercy. God is drawn to the humble, the broken, the impoverished. And the spirit that we see in Peter here, what I have I give, is the spirit we find in God. The reality is, though, serving others is at times at cost to yourself. Doing miracles sounds like heady stuff, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to do the miracles the disciples did? Who wouldn't want to be able to, to touch a guy's hand and raise him up and watch him jumping all around with joy and be a part of that? But it cost to be a miracle worker. Cost Jesus would have been a lot safer to finish his career as a carpenter in Nazareth. Carpenters in Nazareth didn't end up on the cross. The disciples, because of doing a miracle, of showing kindness to this man at the prompting of the Spirit, are now opening the door in chapter 3 to the enemy. It's all of a sudden put a big target on the back. They've got a bullseye on them. Serving others, which is the spirit, I think, that is manifested here as we talk about the priorities of God, also associates doing life as God did and Jesus did. To give what you have been given is not always safe. Sociologist and historian Rodney Stark presents a powerful argument that one of the principal reasons Christianity grew while Roman paganism waned was the mercy Christians displayed toward people who suffered. In the second and third century, beginning around 160 AD, there were two giant urban plagues that took place in, in the urban centers of the Roman Empire. The first was known to have taken one-third of the population's life. Most people think it was probably a, a, a smallpox. In the ravaging of people's lives, what people would regularly do would be to take members of their family, 
uh, that were dying and they would put them outside the city to just die because they were so terrorized to keep them in the house. One of the early church fathers wrote this statement as the uh, populace in Rome was fleeing cities where the smallpox came. Most Christians in the plagues showed unbounded love and loyalty. Never sparing themselves and thinking only of others, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, tending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. They departed from their lives serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors and cheerfully accepted their pains. So many in nursing and caring others transferred their deaths to themselves and died in their stead. Who does that remind you of? The very character of Christ was manifested in the early church. What they had, they gave. The true polemic for Christianity is not that we get it right. It's not that we line up ultimately in the moral positions, I, although I believe in those. And The polemic, the argument for Christianity is the same as it has always been. We love kindness. We reach out to the suffering. What we have, we give at personal cost. There is a spirit of benevolence and generosity that marks the spirit of God. The people that are marked by the spirit of God. I don't mean just financially. I'm talking about our time, our abilities, our, our resources. This is the first miracle, and it is instructive about all miracles. I want to close with this. It is instructive to you, wherever you are, because it points, first of all, to his power. To rescue and change your life. That his power is available to impact your life when you simply acknowledge the brokenness and the need. It points to his future reconciling of all things. Life will be as it ought to be to what your life and future can one day be if you embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. It points to his providence. You're here today or watching online today by divine appointment. You say, no, I'm not. I'm here to make my girlfriend happy so she'll go out to lunch with me. Honestly, there's something a lot bigger at play in you being here today. It points to his priority. Jesus also gives what he has. And what he has is life, forgiveness, transforming grace. To you, if you own your brokenness, if you cry out to him for life and salvation and forgiveness, this miracle, of all, as all of his miracles, point to Jesus, the kind one, the one who gives what he has, who offers what he has to you and to me, wherever we are. Maybe you're here 
And God purposely, sovereignly has brought you to this room this morning to say, this message is for you. You're that lame man. He said, I'm not a lame. No, no. There's brokenness in you. There's need in you. Jesus has come to provide transforming grace, forgiveness. And this miracle, as all miracles, points to his priority, the one who delights to show mercy. Let's pray together. Lord, you know the heart of every person in this room. You know it better than they know themselves. You know their need. You know their pain. And God, my prayer this morning is that we might go where this passage is intended to take us to point us to Christ. Lord, make yourself known. I pray that you would draw hearts to want to yield and bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord, the one who is the healer, the one who does bring mercy and grace. I also pray, Father, that there would be hope in this passage. Some are dealing with deep and long afflictions. God, we thank you that this in this unnatural, aberrant world, this is not the end of the story. That there is a place where everything is restored to the way life ought to be, the way you've designed it to be. God, how we want to see everyone embrace that life that they might experience life as it ought to be one day. So, Lord, move in our hearts and our lives. May we look to Christ. May we be drawn to him this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.